0: This is the word of Almighty God, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Pray with me, dear friends. Lord, help us now to open your word and to be super faithful in it. God, help us not to distract ourselves with controversies, but rather to see the genuine truth in your word that is here to give us courage and hope and encouragement. And I pray, Lord, for those who don't know you yet, that you will draw people to yourself as we open your word and we seek to be faithful. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. What darker word is there in the English language than this word, death? What word has a greater sobriety? What word has a greater seeming finality? What word touches the lives of every person on earth more than death? I assume that all of us here have at one time or another lost loved ones. Nearly all of us here have tasted the bitterness of of grief one way or another. Even Jesus' disciples knew the horror of seeing their beloved master, their teacher, taken out, beaten, humiliated, nailed to a Roman cross. The disciples knew the sorrow of knowing that their leader was gone. They just knew it. They knew the agony of wishing just for a moment they could hear his voice again that they could see his smile again, that they could share a meal with him again, that they could learn at his feet again. Last week was Resurrection Sunday. And wasn't it beautiful, by the way? Yes. Hang out in the park. Now we're back here, and I feel like you all are facing the wrong direction. <laughs> now I like this. I like this. We were reminded last week of the glorious truth of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is alive. Aren't you glad about that? Jesus didn't stay dead. On the third day, Jesus got up, walked out of the tomb, and proved to us all that his work on the cross is enough to save our very souls. But for many people, the news of the resurrection of Jesus, if they don't think about it long enough, it won't help them as they deal with issues like death and disease and hardship and ugliness in this world. Have you suffered loss? Do Do you fear that you may soon suffer loss? Do you fear that maybe you're going to be the one lost to his or her family? I want to tell you something today, folks. There's hope. There's joy. There is a bright end to this tale for everybody who knows Jesus. So today, this is the week after we focused on Jesus' resurrection. What a perfect day for you and me to think about another hope. See, the passage we just read is God letting you and me know that Jesus' resurrection is not the only resurrection there will be. In point of fact, every single person who knows Jesus, every forgiven believer, has a resurrection to come in front of him. In front of her. And that fact should change your very life. If you're a note taker, who's a note taker here? Amen, love you guys. Five points to be found in a passage that is very familiar, but which we haven't taught enough here. Last week we looked at the resurrection of Jesus. This week, let's see our resurrection. Doesn't that sound good? Point number one. Understanding our resurrection gives hope. Point number one, understanding our resurrection gives hope. Look at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. All right, survey question. How many of you have read C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters? couple of y'all have done that. All right, all right, good for you. If you guys know C.S. Lewis, you know that man had a beautifully big imagination. And the Screwtape Letters, an imaginary book, fiction, is a, a set of 31 letters from one demon to another. Screwtape is the name of an experienced devil who sends a set of letters to his young, not quite so competent nephew, Wormwood. And the goal is to help the younger demon to guide a particular person toward damnation. The concept is actually very, very clever. Now, I've got to confess to you, first time I tried to read the screw tape letters, I fell asleep several times during the audiobook. So if that's you, I just want you to know I feel you. Some folks love this book. Some people can't get into it. But Here's the clever thought process. I think this is interesting, right? Lewis gives us some wisdom, because there is a wisdom in knowing the ways of the enemy so that you know how to protect yourself from his evil strategies. Now, I would not want you to get all demon excited and start studying demons too much, because the truth is the way you beat the devil, the way that you beat the demons in the Bible is that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, that's what we want to focus on, on the Lord. But when you read in this book things that like Screwtape does, he, he focuses his nephew on strategies of distraction. And doesn't that make sense to you? If the devil could get you and me to stop thinking about things that God says are important, he's got a greater chance to tempt us and to harm us. And I think if I were writing for Screwtape, if, if, I, were, if I were a devil writing to a demon to mess with you, I'm not, by the way. I want you to be clear about this. But if I wanted to hurt the people of God, if I wanted to make the people of God focus too much on worldly things, if I wanted the people of God to fear instead of being bold with the gospel, I would try to prevent believers from thinking about the hope that is set before us. I would try to make Christians think only about this life, this world, this time, I try to keep your eyes off of heaven. I try to keep your eyes off of the promises of God for eternity. I think that would be a trick I would try to pull on you if I were an evil demon. But I wonder if that kind of strategy is not already actually it at work in the world we live in right now. Let me ask you. How do you react when somebody talks about the return of Jesus Christ? What do you do emotionally? What does it do to you emotionally, church, when you hear the word rapture? Do you get excited or do you cringe? Do you get overly fascinated so that all you think about is the future and not about the here and now? Do you want to scoff because of the way the topic has been handled by some people out there? That the books and movies make you not want to talk about this anymore? Are you turned off by the attitudes, though, or or the, the argumentative, nasty spirit of some other folks who just want to fight about it no matter what? Maybe you just think it's scary or too complicated or too big for your brain, so you don't want to do it anymore. Listen. God has told you and me, in his word, things about the future, and he did it for a purpose. And no, the purpose is not so that you and others can have ugly arguments about the timeline. God has told us about what is to come in order to give his people hope. When Paul wrote this letter to the people of Thessalonica, by the way, may very well be the first letter Paul wrote in the New Testament, He included a section in here about the return of Jesus because for some reason the people of Thessalonica had begun to be deeply troubled for the souls of the believers they knew who had already died. Paul intended that these people would understand that just as Jesus rose from the grave, he's going to one day bring all believers out of their graves too. Paul talked about the return of Jesus to give Christians hope. Verse 13, he says he doesn't want the readers to be uninformed. He doesn't want them to be ignorant about what has happened with believers who have already died in the faith. He doesn't want you to think that they have somehow gone somewhere beyond the goodness and the grace of God. He doesn't want the living to think that they have hope in the return of Jesus, but their dead relatives have somehow missed out. Paul wants these folks to be aware of the true state of those who have died in Christ so that we who remain will not grieve as the world grieves. Paul wants us to have hope. Now real quick, be careful not to misunderstand Paul with the the word uh, that I don't want you to grieve like the world grieves. He's not saying that you can't grieve at the loss of a loved one. That's not the word of God. In Philippians chapter 2.27, Paul said that if a friend of his had died, he would have experienced sorrow upon sorrow. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Ever think about that? Jesus knew he was bringing him out of the grave in like 10 minutes. Sadness at the experience of loss. Sadness at the pain of others. That is normal and it's right. But God doesn't want us to grieve like the rest of the world. That's the point. And what's different in my grief and theirs? What's different in our grief and theirs? They grieve with no hope. The world grieves when they lose a loved one with a grief that says it's all lost. It's all over. There's no more. There's nothing left. They're gone. You know, they were a bag of chemicals that we really loved for several years and now it's dissipated the world grieves hopelessly because they do not know the goodness and they do not know the justice of Jesus Christ. But we who know Jesus, we grieve with hope. We grieve with the knowledge that our loved ones who knew Jesus, the moment their souls depart their bodies, they are instantly in the presence of the Lord. They are awake. They are aware. They are comforted by God and they're looking forward to the future day of the Lord when Jesus is going to return and when everything is set right. We grieve because it's right to sorrow at the departure of a friend or family member. That's true. We grieve because we don't have that person in our lives today. We grieve conversations we can no longer have Jokes we can no longer share. Wisdom we can no longer tap. We grieve the things about friends and family that we'd miss deeply if they were just to move away and were somehow unable to communicate back with us. But we grieve knowing that if they knew Jesus and we know Jesus, we're going to see Him again. There is another grief, by the way, the grief of the loss of a loved one who didn't know Jesus. And I don't have time to talk much about that this morning. But I want to remind you of this. The Lord is perfect. The Lord is good. The Lord is just. The Lord is right. And the Lord has promised he will dry every tear from our eyes. Now this passage today is going to teach us about the return of Jesus, the resurrection of the blessed, the catching up of the living saints to be united with their Savior. These are the topics that the devil, I think, would love to not not ever let us think about. He would love to let us be so embarrassed by bad t-shirts and people with their charts out that, that that we don't think about it anymore. He'd love for us to be distracted by fighting with each other about, no, I know how it's going to go. And you saying no, I know how it's going to go. And not see the glory. The devil wants you to look at the book of Revelation and argue about whether this is symbolic or this is literal rather than you look at the book of Revelation and finding the hope of the glories of the reigning King Jesus. The devil wants you to fight and argue, not look at the promise what God wants is for you and me to see that the promise of our future resurrection it's right here in the word of God to give us a hope that the world around us doesn't have so let's press on and let's look at the return of Jesus and find hope for our souls and determine never ever let that hope go point number two our resurrection is based on Jesus point number two Our resurrection is based on Jesus. Verse 14 begins with this phrase. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Quick poll, do you guys believe that? That helps. Paul points us here toward thinking about the future. He's going to talk to us about the resurrection. He wants to make sure that you and I understand that our resurrection is not first and foremost a thing focused on us. What did Anthony keep telling us in growth class today? It's not about you. In point of fact, our resurrection is about Jesus. Since Jesus died and rose again, since we know that's true, we've got a reason to believe what Jesus has also promised. We're going to look at the promise, how it comes to pass in the next verses, but even before we look at the details of what's to come, we ground everything in the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You want to test somebody's salvation, start there. Is Jesus now your Lord? Do you believe in, the heart God, in your heart God raised him from the dead? That's a good starting point, don't you think? Notice, when Paul talks here about saving faith, he starts with faith in the resurrection of Jesus. Why do you think it might be that the resurrection is the belief test here? Because if you can believe the resurrection of Jesus, you should be able to believe all the claims that Scripture makes about Jesus. What has the Bible taught us about Jesus? Jesus is God the Son. Jesus is God in the flesh. And Jesus came to earth to live a perfect human life, fulfilling God's requirement of perfection for any man to receive his forever blessing, for any woman to receive his forever blessing. Then Jesus died as a sacrifice for the sins of everyone he came to save. On one one Friday afternoon, almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus took upon himself all of the punishment that all of the forgiven deserve to receive, but never will. Jesus was buried. He was in the tomb touching three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. On that third day, on that Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead he walked out of the tomb he displayed for the watching world to see that his work was done that his sacrifice was perfect and that everybody who comes to him believing in him turning from their sins seeking forgiveness will have forgiveness and eternal life Jesus conquered death now If you've never come to Jesus for life or if you don't know for sure whether you're a believer, let me make this as plain as I can. God's word says, if you want to be forgiven by God, if you want to have heaven be your home, you have to turn away from sin and put your trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone. I offer you this morning the opportunity to be forgiven by God. Know this. Know this. We all start out as sinners before God, don't we? We are sinners by nature. We are sinners by choice. We we have done evil before God. And Jesus did what it takes for you to be made right with God, for your sin to be forgiven. Know that there is no other way besides There's no other way that you could be saved. There's there's nothing other than Jesus. There's no other path to God. So decide, I'd rather follow Jesus than be the ruler of my own life. You talk to Jesus and you confess to Jesus, Lord Jesus, I'm guilty of sin. I'm a sinner. Ask him, Lord Jesus, please save me. Make a commitment. Jesus, I want to follow you. I want you to be the Lord. I want you to be the master. You get to be the boss from now on. And God promises this. Every single person who comes to Jesus in genuine faith and repentance will be saved. They will be forgiven. They will be transformed from being sinners to saints. That's good news, isn't it? And by the way, transforming you into a saint doesn't mean that you get a halo and you get to be perfect. At least not in this life, right? You're going to wrestle with sin until the day you die. But God looks at your record and says forgiven, just like Jesus is perfect. All who reject Jesus, though, you want to turn your back on Jesus, you just want to say, I don't want to go through Jesus. The only thing you have in front of you is the judgment of God and the fearful eternity of the wrath of God in front of you. If you're saved, the resurrection of Jesus, it's more than your hope of forgiveness. The resurrection of Jesus is the foreshadowing of of a great day to come in your life when everybody who knows Jesus comes out of his or her grave to eternal life. So point number three, let's get into that. Our resurrection includes all who are in Christ. Our resurrection includes all who are in Christ. Look at 14 and 15 now. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus... God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. You guys ever noticed that in the Bible, you oftentimes see arguments made where it says, like, if this is true, then that's true. If this, then that. And sometimes it goes from something small to something big. Right. If earthly parents know how to give good gifts to their children, even though they're sinful people, how much more bigger will our Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Sometimes it goes from the big to the small. If Jesus knows the name of every star in the sky, and He knows exactly how many hairs are on your head, which for most of you is an issue... If he knows all that, he surely knows what you need this week, doesn't he? Big to small. In this instance, we have a this, then, that. A glorious pairing. We believe Jesus died and rose from the grave. That's the greatest truth imaginable. And Paul adds for us that if we believe that truth, that Jesus died and rose again, we also must believe that when Jesus returns, he's going to bring back to earth with him Everyone who ever died under the grace of God. Those believers who have died before us, they're not disadvantaged in any way. When Jesus comes back, they're coming back with him. Be careful with the words fallen asleep here. That's a euphemism for death. It was used in the Bible, it was used in cultures of that same time frame. It is not a claim that those who have died are somehow unconscious, that they're asleep, that they're in some ethereal nether state. The Bible's teaching is that if someone has died in Christ, they are aware of who they are, they're aware of where they are, and they're aware of why. The people of Thessalonica, they had developed a fear. They thought, man, if somebody knew Jesus, but they died before Jesus got back, they're, they're left out of it all. Paul writes this to say, no, 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 be comforted. The day of the return of Jesus will include God's blessing on the saints who are alive that day and God's blessing on the saints who have gone before. And neither group, neither those who are alive when Jesus comes back nor those who have died before Jesus comes back, neither group has an advantage over the other. So know this, Christian. All believers who die will rise from the dead. All who are with Jesus in heaven now will return to the earth. How do we know? What evidence do we have for it? Paul says he got this teaching from the Lord himself. Paul says you should believe in the return of Jesus just like you believe in his resurrection. And Paul says if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you can believe in and find hope in the knowledge that everybody who knows Jesus as Savior is coming out of their graves one day too. Our resurrection is a sure thing because it's based on the resurrection of Jesus and his promise of his return. And if that's true for those of us who are alive in this room today, it is equally true for all of the saints who've died in years past. Now, fourth point. Our resurrection will be glorious. Our resurrection will be glorious. 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So, what have we established so far? Our resurrection gives us hope. Our resurrection is based on the resurrection of Jesus. Our resurrection includes all the Christians out there. All the saints of the Old Testament, there's no loss for those who die in the faith. But what is it going to look like? Don't you, aren't you just curious about that? What can we expect on that day? That's where Paul turns next. Now, this is not the only passage in Scripture that lays these things out. You can see them in 1 Corinthians 15. You can see them in Matthew 24. You can see them other places. But these two verses give us a very clear, very step-by-step picture of something that is to come. First, Paul tells us, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. How cool is that? With a cry of command. There is a day coming someday in the future, ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus Christ himself will come down to earth out of the sky. What's that going to look like? I don't know. Now, here's a question though: Is that promise of Jesus' return? Is that a physical thing? Or is this something figurative, something symbolic? I want you to think about the day Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter one. After Jesus rose from the grave, he walked around on the Earth alive in a real physical human body for 40 days. And in that time, he taught his disciples. He spoke to crowds, some large. And Jesus prepared the new church for life under the new covenant. And then Jesus ascended, which means he went up into heaven, alive, where he now resides, alive until his return. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, reads as follows. And when he had said these things, when Jesus said the last things he said to the church... As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Please note the phrase in the same way. Two things that you need to know about Jesus about how He went into heaven. One: Jesus' ascent into heaven was literal. This was not imaginary. It's not symbolical. The true Jesus literally, physically, visibly went up from this earth into the sky until he was hidden by the clouds. I can ask Jonah, but that seems like a long way up. He went from whatever physical height he was up in above the clouds to sitting down on the throne in heaven, and that's where he is right now. Second, notice the promise of the angel. The angel who spoke to those amazed disciples promised that Jesus would return to earth in the same way that he left it. This means, if we can believe this angel, you all believe the angel? Jesus is going to come down out of the sky and eventually set his feet on the earth again. It has to be literal, not symbolic. It has to be physical, not ethereal. It has to be visible because the ascension was visible. Not only is Jesus going to return to the earth from the sky just as he left. He's going to return with a loud command. Is that a shout from Jesus? Is it a booming voice from God the Father? We don't know. But when Jesus comes back, it's going to be noisy and highly noticeable. And then the next details we get are these. With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of God. So the return of Jesus and our resurrection is accompanied by angelic activity and a heavenly trumpet call. Now, who is this archangel? The answer, we don't know. The the name's not given here. The word archangel is a word that means chief angel, highest ranking angel. What he's going to say or what he's going to do, what his name is, that's not ours to know right now. What about this trumpet? In scripture, a blown trumpet was often associated with a military movement, maybe with a sacred day. When Israel was moving through the wilderness in the Exodus, they blew trumpets to signal when the people were supposed to get up and start moving. Certain sacred feast days were signified by the blowing of trumpets. When you see a trumpet call here, don't think of that sort of three-valved instrument that's in a marching band. It's, It's not Louis Armstrong's trumpet. It was a loud, blasting trumpet that signaled something was about to happen. So Jesus is going to come down from the sky with a shout, with angelic activity, with the trumpet call. Then at the end of verse 16, Paul adds the detail that the dead in Christ will rise first. This is a biblical promise that at the return of Jesus, all who have died knowing Jesus are going to physically be raised from the dead. It's going to take place before anything happens with the Christians who are physically alive when Jesus comes back. Don't you have great technical questions right now? How much of the body is physically coming out of the grave? What about those who weren't buried? What about those who had been cremated? I heard a kid, I'm not kidding you, ask, what about somebody who was eaten by a bear? (laughs) What if there was an explosion, there's nothing found? May I simply say this to you? First, God is all-knowing, right? That means God is knowledgeable enough to do anything He wants, and the Lord knows all things, including where every single molecule is that ever belonged to any person's body, period. Second, is God limited in his power? No, the Lord is powerful enough to bring together things you and I thought were utterly destroyed. And third, God doesn't tell us what this is going to look like. All we need to know is that something that has a connection to the bodies of those who are saved will rise from the grave Before anything happens with those who are physically alive when Jesus returns. There's no earthly barrier that's a problem. No gruesome death was a problem. No attack from a polar bear was a problem. No scattering of ashes was a problem. God is going to accomplish exactly what he said. Amen. Then, we who are alive, who are left, verse 17 says, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now that means there are going to be Christians who are alive on the earth on the day when Jesus comes back. Some people think the way Paul writes this thinks that he might even be, he might think he might be one. But also, Paul was just saying, "Hey guys, I'm currently alive while writing this book." Is also another way to interpret that. <laughs> but after the dead in Christ come out of their graves, as Jesus descends to the earth from heaven. Living Christians on the earth will be caught up together with the ones who have come out of their graves into the clouds to meet Jesus in the air. God will, by God's power, snatch from the earth every living Christian so their meeting Jesus face-to-face occurs in the sky as Jesus is returning from heaven to earth. Does that sound cool to you? Even you who are afraid of heights? It's okay. Jesus got you. How many of you have heard the word rapture used by Christians when they talk about the return of Jesus? Yeah. The word rapture is a form of a Latin word meaning to catch something up or to snatch something up. That's what it means. That means the word rapture is a perfect word to describe what we just read. Physically, dead Christians are going to be resurrected from their graves. Then all Christians, those who just got raised and those who are alive on the earth, are going to be snatched up by God to meet Jesus in the air. That's Calling that the rapture is just fine. It's a biblical thing. The unfortunate thing is many Christians have tied other systems of theology other doctrines other timelines to this discussion people get kind of cringy about the word listen if you understand that the word rapture means to catch something up and that the word of God just promised us that all Christians will one day be caught up to meet Jesus in the air you must conclude that the rapture is a biblical thing We might disagree on the timeline of future events. Might disagree with somebody who says that this is a secret event that's going to open a seven-year period on the earth and all the stuff that goes with that. Maybe you totally agree with that. Simple fact is, resurrected and living saints are going to be caught up to meet Jesus, will be raptured, and that's a promise from God. Jesus told us the same thing, by the way. In Matthew 24, verse 31, Jesus said, And he, on that day when he comes back, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Not in the Thessalonians passage, by the way. Paul tells us that at the moment we're caught up to meet Jesus, and some of y'all are really going to like this, our very bodies are going to be instantly transformed. We will still be ourselves, but we will no longer live in bodies that get sick and die and break down and don't do what we want them to do. Instead, we're going to be given by God brand new everlasting resurrection bodies. <laughs> Philippians 3:20 20 and 21. Listen to the word of God. Listen to the word of God. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. Do you feel like you have a lowly body? Anybody's body feel lowly today? He says he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's good, guys. 1 Corinthians 15, Ben read some of it for us, Fifteen fifty two. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What does that mean? You don't go to heaven and live forever in a body that doesn't last forever. You've got to have something new. You've got to have a long-lasting body to live in heaven. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, never dying again, and we shall be changed. How glorious, friends, this will all be. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Jesus descends, dead Christians come out of the grave, all Christians are changed instantly, snatched up, caught into the air, and greet the Savior in the sky. And Paul adds at the end of verse 17, and so we will always be with the Lord. Once this happens, we're going to be with Jesus, we're not going to be separated from Jesus ever again. We'll know total peace, true peace, total joy, true joy. We will know true life that lasts forever, and it can never, ever, ever be taken away. What do you do with knowledge like this? Well, again, you could argue about it, never focus on it. You could get nitpicky with other people around you about whether they see it exactly the way you see it. Or how about point number five? Our resurrection brings comfort to us now. Our resurrection brings comfort to us now. But look at this, verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Do you see the command there? Encourage one another with these words. If your view of the end times, if your view of the return of Jesus does not lead you to encourage other believers, your view's wrong. Even if you've got the timeline perfect. You get it? Encourage one another with these words. Hear this, Christian. Encourage each other with the words of God that promised Jesus is coming back that promise the resurrection of believers, that promise our eternal future with the Lord, because it gives us hope. It gives us courage. It helps us live in the here and now, knowing something far better is yet to come. This is the point, guys. Believe Jesus is coming back. Don't worry so much about the timeline. Don't worry so much about the argument. Now, I think you should think it through. I think you should know exactly what you believe the Bible is telling you will happen in the order that the Bible will think it happens. Honestly, I think you should agree with me because I think I'm right. (laughs) If I thought I was wrong, it would be silly, wouldn't it? But know this. Whether you agree with me or not, and God bless you if you do, and God bless you if you don't. Know what you believe. Know Jesus is coming back. Think about it. Don't ignore it. Talk about it. Don't hide it. Encourage other believers with those words. Now, if you don't know Jesus, here's the call. Come to Jesus and get under the grace of Jesus before it's too late. If you do know Jesus, find real joy in the hope of his return. Find real joy in the promise of resurrection to eternal life and let that real joy comfort you and give you the energy and the courage you need to live as a believer who will take this world head on for the glory of Jesus because you know that something way, way better is promised and nothing this world could do could ever take it away from you. Let's pray together.